Alright, hello, welcome to Adventures Among Ideas, bringing you invigorating instances from the history of intellection, available on video and in audio podcast form. Today, we come with great relief and hopefully much enlightenment to, at long last, the end of the Limits of Pluralism debate. The debate consisted, uh, historically... As a matter of history, of ten or so articles written in the late 1970s, and it's taken me five episodes to explore. So far, we've talked about Wayne Booth, M.H. Abrams, J. Hillis Miller, and James Kincaid, and we've discussed such things as the ethics of criticism, historical interpretation, deconstruction and nihilism, and literary incoherence. So, a lot of different topics, or I should say a lot of different approaches, perspectives on this particular topic. The final, the last and but not least final entry in our debate comes to us from Morse Peckham. Morse Peckham was yet another English professor, mainly at the University of Pennsylvania and the University of South Carolina. And he's been, I should say, one of the profoundest intellectual influences on me personally. Peckham's entry is called The Infinitude of Pluralism. That's right, The Infinitude. Not just the large amount, but The Infinitude of Pluralism. Uh, this article was responded to in turn by M.H. Abrams in an article called Behaviorism and Deconstruction. Apparently, Peckham also wrote a reply to Abrams, but this was never published and probably doesn't exist anymore. But I've seen reference to it. Uh... But a kind of, anyway, a kind of revision of Peckham's article was published in, in and around 1979-80 as the, uh, something called The Problem of Interpretation, another essay called The Problem of Interpretation. This later essay makes certain points uh, more clearly, so I'll be using it to explain Peckham's position also. The Problem of Interpretation, this other article or essay is also probably a better essay to read if you want to study Peckham's view more closely. Um, just the infinitude of pluralism is good, but has a kind of condescending tone that might be a turnoff for you or for some people. A variety of issues are discussed in the infinitude article, such as Abram's theory of romanticism, the history of deconstruction, but I just want to hone in here to focus in on what Peckham says about interpretation specifically. All right, so what actually is interpretation? What are we doing when we interpret something? This is Peckham's big question here, and it's a question that concerned him in a lot of his work over the course of his life. In starting out, Peckham makes two big assumptions. One... One assumption is that there is nothing unique about literary language, nothing special about it. From the perspective of the use of language, from the perspective of semantics, he says, there's nothing going on in literature that does not also go on in everyday life. That's the first assumption that language is, that the language of literature is not a special kind of language. The second assumption is related to this. 
So the second assumption is that the interpretation of literature, the interpretation of poems, novels, whatever, is a special case of the interpretation used in everyday verbal interaction. So it's not special in the unique sense, it's just you know, a case of a certain kind of the interpretation that we use in everyday verbal interactions, such as ordering at a restaurant, gossiping with our friends, etc. So the theory of literary interpretation is a special case of, or is a part of, the theory of how we interpret everyday verbal interactions. It's a case of the interpretation of verbal behavior more generally. And the theory of, uh, of verbal behavior is part of, as Peckham says, is subsumed by a theory of signs or semiotic behavior. And I'm going to leave this part of the equation aside for now. We don't really need to get into semiotics too much here. Try to keep things simple. This all makes sense because in human evolution, presumably, we were using language in practical ways before we learned how to make literature. Right? We were giving each other instructions, we were telling each other, you know, how we were feeling, what we saw, and all of that kind of thing before we were making literature and before we learned how to use language. Of course, we presumably relied on nonverbal forms of communication, as other animals do, so these things are all connected. They're all continuous in a certain way with each other. So evolutionarily speaking, literature developed out of a more general linguistic ability and and that out of more general non-linguistic uh, non communication ability. And so our ability to interpret literature is dependent on our ability to interpret general language use. All right. So again, there's nothing special about the language of literature. So our theory about interpreting this language, interpreting the language of literature, is necessarily part of a theory about interpreting language and signs more generally. Okay, are you with me so far? Well, in the infinitude of pluralism, as well as in many other essays, Pekka makes a distinction between two kinds of interpretation, sometimes three kinds, though the third kind is actually a special case of the second. So basically, two kinds of interpretation. And in nearly every essay, Peckham gives these two kinds of interpretation, different names, just to keep us on our toes. But this can be a little bit annoying. But on the other hand, going through the different names does give you a little bit of insight, a little bit of extra insight into what he's talking about. It gives you kind of these different perspectives on this uh, one distinction that he's making. So in the infinitude essay that I'm focusing on here, Peckham talks about situational interpretation versus emergent interpretation. So he's got these two kinds of interpretation, situational and emergent. But in other essays, if you read around in Peckham's works, he talks about situational versus non-situational interpretation or historical philological interpretation versus Augustinian interpretation or again, historical philological interpretation versus deviant interpretation. I like that one, deviant interpretation. Or he says, yet again, genetic interpretation versus anti-genetic interpretation. All of these pairs, all of these oppositional pairs here mean the same thing. 
I'm going to mostly use um, situational versus emergent interpretation here. All right, so to see what these things mean, what this distinction means, let's start with a simple example. This is an example Peckin often used. It's an example of someone ordering a cup of coffee in a restaurant. Peckham uses this example in a kind of confusing way sometimes, so I'm going to try to make it clearer, try to make things more clear. And this is just relying on my background of having read a lot of Peckham, so I have this idea that I think I know how to interpret him best, because that's just how we think when we know someone. So I, I think I know his intention in using this example, even though he didn't say things exactly as I'm going to say them but I think I'm getting at what he really wanted to say. Uh, of course, I could be wrong, but you can always read his article for yourself. So in this example of ordering a cup of coffee, there's two people. We're going to have two characters, two main characters here. There's a customer and there's a waiter, and they are in a restaurant or a diner or something like that. The cust now, the, uh, here, in this example, the customer and the waiter are going to be stand-ins for the author and the reader critic. So the customer is the author in this example, and the waiter is the reader or critic, right? The person doing the interpreting. So here we go. So the customer walks into a diner. A waiter comes up, and the customer says, a cup of coffee, please. So here we've got our literary text. This is our great, magnificent literary text. A cup of coffee, please. So the waiter, hearing this, the waiter walks off, pours a cup of coffee, brings it to the customer. The customer says, thank you. Thinking to herself, ah, this waiter has interpreted my literary masterpiece in just the way I intended. How did the waiter... So here's our question. How did the waiter know how to respond correctly? Well, there's a lot of background that goes into this, of course. Uh, learning and such. In Peckham's technical language, the explanation of the waiter's behavior goes like this. The waiter has performed a perceptual disengagement of an analogically determined recurrent semiotic pattern from an analogically determined series of semiotic matrices. Simple, right? I think you got it. But if we want to kind of break that down, put it in more everyday language, we could say that the waiter has experienced or witnessed similar utterances, similar uses of language, in similar situations before, and he's learned how to respond to them. Here, in a, case, in a way that lets him keep his job, uh, specifically. Uh, so when Peckham talks about a matrix, when he's talking about disengaging a an analogically determined recurrent semiotic pattern from a series of semiotic matrices from a matrix. He's talking about the situation, basically. We're talking about the situation, the context. So here, the situation is the, uh, the diner, the restaurant, the social roles that are involved of customer, waiter, and the utterance of the customer. So in this example, the utterance is the part that needs to be interpreted, the thing that the waiter needs to interpret. So that's disengaged. The waiter perceptually disengages that from the whole matrix, compares that to utter, um, utter, uh, utter, other kinds of utterances that have occurred in this kind of matrix before. 
And in this example, the reader slash waiter has correctly interpreted the author slash customer according to the author, according to the author's judgment or the customer's judgment, right? The author's meaning has been fulfilled. She got her cup of coffee, which is why in our example, the author says, thank you, and not, this is not what I ordered, right? So if the, you hear the latter thing, you know you've interpreted the person wrong. So this is an example of everyday kind of interpretation, but it's going to work for literary interpretation as well. But let's expand on this first of all. So let's say this customer is a regular customer of this establishment, this fine establishment. Again, she walks in, the customer walks in, she sits down and she says, a cup of coffee, please. But this time, the waiter has a question. He wants to be sure that he's doing the right thing. So he says, don't you usually order tea? And the customer might say, oh, yes, but I didn't sleep very well last night and I need a little extra pick-me-up today. So in this example, the waiter was at first unsure of how to act because the matrix of restaurant customer waiter order doesn't match the matrices of past experience. Something was different. The order, the request was different than what he expected. So the waiter asks for an explanation and the matrix is altered to something like restaurant customer who didn't sleep enough, waiter and order, the customer's order. So we've got kind of a new situation. It's an altered situation. So asking don't you usually order tea in this situation is again it's like asking um why did the author choose this genre or why did the author choose this setting or what's the deal with this metaphor or something like that why did the author do this rather than this other thing that they could have done uh, to strengthen this idea let's change the situation let's say it's the next day all right, it's another day, the next day perhaps. By coincidence, just by pure coincidence, the customer and the waiter both happen to be visiting the beach for recreation. They're just having a fun day at the beach separately, but they're there at the same time. The customer happens to see our waiter. She walks up to him and says, a cup of coffee, please. So here we have the same semiotic <coughs> pattern, excuse me, a cup of coffee, please. But the matrix or the situation is utterly different, a totally different situation. So how does the waiter respond? Probably not by getting a cup of coffee, though he might do this as a kind of a joke. Um, or you're playing along with the joke, maybe. In other words, although the, the this set of words, a cup of coffee, please, still has the form of a request, the waiter is probably not going to categorize it as a real request. To figure out what's going on, he'll have to look at look to other situational cues. Perhaps he knows from previous experiences that this particular customer has a you know a dry sense of humor. Or he can tell from the customer's sly smile, a subtle smile, that she's being humorous. In that case, the waiter might interpret or categorize the customer's utterance as a joke and determine that laughter is the most appropriate response. So not actually getting a cup of coffee, but just laughing. 
Or maybe he knows from previous experience that this particular customer is kind of a jerk. Or he can tell that the customer is a jerk from her condescending smirk. And so the waiter may tell her to, you know, go suck an egg, as we, as we used to say. So now we would normally say something a little less <clears throat> polite, a little something more direct. But whatever, tell her to, you know, go take a hike. Uh, in any case, here we've got two examples of what Peckham called situational interpretation. The waiter has interpreted the customer, the customer on the basis of these various situational cues, like the location, the body language, their respective social roles, and so on. And he's learned how to, um, learned how to respond to these things over the course of his experience. When the waiter has some uncertainty about how to respond, he has to try to figure out the customer's intention. The customer's, what is the customer's intention? So intention, this is, you know, in other words, he's got to try to figure out what is controlling the customer's behavior. And when we ask about someone's intentions, when we use, when you, we, uh, use this word intention, we're asking about what's controlling a person's behavior. Why are they doing what they're doing? Uh, so, for example, the customer orders coffee instead of tea because of excessive tiredness. That tiredness is controlling her behavior to order co uh, coffee instead of tea. Uh, so this is one way to treat a literary text. If you're unsure about how to respond to it, about what its meaning is, you can ask about the author's intention. This is something we commonly do. What were the factors controlling the author's behavior to make them write in this way rather than some other way? And, uh, so what kind of response does the author want? And in the case of the customer, the waiter can always check if his interpretation was correct by observing the response of the customer or asking for further explanation, like, don't you usually order tea? Or by asking the customer if she's satisfied. Are you happy with your service today? In fact, we can do a similar thing with a living author, right? We can just go and find them and ask them if we understood their book right or if we understood their writing in the correct way. And they, you know, they might have various responses to that, like, yeah, it means whatever you want it to mean, or no, I wanted you to get this from it, not this, right? We can have this kind of dialogue with authors that focuses in on what they were really trying to say, what they really wanted the reader to experience. Uh, so consider something more specifically literary. M.H. Abrams, who I've already mentioned a bunch of times uh, in this series of uh, episodes, M.H. Abrams in Natural Supernaturalism pointed out that many Romantic poets, this is his great book of uh, the history of the Romantic era, uh, he pointed out that many Romantic poets wrote about a marriage between man and nature, or between mind and nature. And if you want to interpret these statements about man and nature getting married, if you want to interpret this metaphor of marriage situationally, you would want to look at the history up to that time of marriage metaphors and poetry. Uh, uh, you would want to look at, you know, what did ma uh, man mean? What did nature mean? What, are, what were the particular significances at the time of these words, these concepts? Uh, why were they considered to be separate domains that needed to be wedded or married together? 
and so on. So, of course, in interpreting historical uh, texts such as these, it's uh, much harder to check our interpretation. We can't go back and ask the uh, author what they were doing. Uh, you know, what did they have in mind? Why they wrote what they wrote? We just have to take into account as much relevant historical evidence as we can and uh, check our results with other critics who are working according to this similar kind of interpretational method. Okay, so basically that's all the first kind of interpretation, but there's another, there's a yet another kind of interpretation. This is not the only game in town. There's another kind of interpretation, what Peckham called ideological interpretation or emergent interpretation or non-situational or anti-genetic interpretation and so on. I'm gonna, uh, I think I'm going to stick with emergent interpretation. But in situational interpretation, which we were just talking about, you're interested in what controlled the generation of the utterance. What made this utterance happen? What were the factors leading to this utterance? But in the other kind of interpretation, in emergent interpretation, you've got uh, a different interest. You're interested in exemplifying and and stabilizing a new theory in your own culture. You're interested more in your own situation. You're interested in this utterance because it seems to provide an example of your own favored theory. Say Freudian psychoanalysis or Marxism. These are kind of the big two that everyone knows and talks about. But of course, there's many, many others. Uh, so in emergent interpretation, you interpret the utterance in terms of a situation other than the one in which it was uttered. And this gets tricky because emergent interpretations often masquerade or rely on or are tangled up with historical or situational interpretations. So this gets pretty messy. But for an example, let's return to our customer and our waiter. So let's say the waiter is a Marxist kind of waiter, a Marxist critic. When the customer orders a cup of coffee, the waiter might respond by declaring something like, well, a cup of coffee is a typically uh, bourgeois commodity. So the fact that you want a cup of coffee demonstrates your submission to bourgeois ideology. So you're just kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> a member of the, uh, of the, the ruling class, someone we've got to uh, be suspicious of. Or let's say the waiter is a Freudian. So when the customer orders a cup of coffee, the waiter might respond with something like, well, a cup of coffee is obviously a representation of the anus. The fact that you desire a cup of coffee is clear evidence of an anal fixation on your part. So we've got to do a lot of work here. Uh, or maybe the waiter is a deconstructionist and might respond, you know, uh, the word cup, the word cup. Going back to Sanskrit kupa for cave, coffee, uh, the word coffee, yeah, coffee from the region of kapha in Ethiopia. So they say a cup of coffee, yeah, a cave, a cave of kapha from whence our ancestors came. Yes, right, please, the word please, to request or to be pleased, request admittance to the cave of Kaffa, be pleased with the cave, find pleasure in a return to the origin. Well, I don't know, it's hard to <laughs> deconstruct five words, but um, 
obviously I'm being facetious here with all of these examples. Um, because I ha you have got a limited text to deal with. So let's take something more serious, more substantial that I stumbled upon recently. So th um, this will hopefully clarify a little bit the distinction between situational and emergent interpretation and maybe show how we sometimes mix these kinds of interpretation or are not even clear to ourselves about which one we're doing. Uh, so this example that I'm going to talk about comes from a new book, a new book called Jordan Peterson Critical Responses, which I have a chapter in, but I'm not going to talk about my chapter. Um, but I may talk about the book itself in a future episode. But I was recently reading through some of the other chapters in this book, and there's a very interesting chapter, I thought, by David, a bunch of very interesting chapters, but one in particular by David Ramsey Steele. And I should say, I agree with a lot that Steele writes in his chapter, but I want to draw attention to his criticism of how Jordan Peterson interprets biblical stories. Maybe you've seen, uh, if you browse around on YouTube, you may have come across Jordan Peterson's interpretations of the Bible. Uh, they were popular at some point. Uh, so Steele criticizes Peterson's interpretations of things like the Adam and Eve, the Cain and Abel stories, and others. Uh, so he criticizes these for a variety of reasons. The, detail, the details are not too important. The important point here is the method that Steele uses. Uh, Steele criticizes Peterson by appealing to things like human history, to chronology, to historical chronology, by appealing to modern biblical scholarship, by appealing, in other words, to what we know about the situation, the historical situation in which the stories likely happened or were invented or were transmitted. So Steele is making use of what I've called uh, situational interpretation, or what Peckham calls situational interpretation. He's making use of a situational interpretation of biblical stories. What was the likely intention of the people who created these stories or carried on these stories in the ancient period? So what about Peterson? Well, Peterson's doing something different, and for a lack of a better word, he's doing something a bit messier. If Steele is acting more like a biblical historian, Peter, Peterson is acting more like a preacher, albeit a relatively secular kind of preacher. So a preacher doesn't typically stand in front of a congregation and go through all the known historical details about, um, you know, the historical details and the history of interpretation of some biblical text. And maybe some do, but generally he or she tries to make the text relevant or meaningful, actionable to the people listening. They're trying to make it, they're trying to tailor it to the audience of today. And I think Peterson's project is more like this. It's a kind of emergent inter interpretation. He's trying to figure out how to make these old, these old texts meaningful or a source of meaning, a basis for action for people of today, for today's people. I don't think Peterson, Peterson him, uh, 
I don't think Peterson himself is totally clear on how his approach differs from that of a, you know, a typical biblical scholar who's applying a method of situational interpretation. And so since Peterson is maybe not totally explicit that that's what he's doing, or maybe it's easy, uh, easy to misinterpret his um, intention here, uh, it can seem like... Um, you know, Peterson is doing a kind of fraudulent scholarship or some kind of incompetent scholarship or being deceptive in some way. But I think it's clear uh, that when Peterson talks about the Bible, he's less less in the tradition of the modern biblical scholar and more in, tra in the tradition of a, of a preacher or a secular prophet, of people who are less less concerned with historical accuracy and the nuances of hermeneutical debate and more interested with doing something about the social ills of the present. So it's more present-oriented than past-oriented. So again, Peterson's uh, method is a little bit messy because he sometimes appeals to ancient history. He does sometimes appeal to, you know, historical facts and so on. And, uh, uh, he talks, he sometimes talks as if he's revealing a, a deeper truth about the stories he interprets. And interestingly, this is actually the way, at least in my kind of experience, my view, this is the way psychoanalysts or Marxists talk as well. They claim also to be, re be revealing something deeper, some deeper truths about you or about society. But actually, they're oriented toward the present and the future, right? The psychoanalyst wants to change your behavior now and going forward in the future. The Marxist wants to change society's behavior. So they're not just trying to interpret the past. You might have heard Marxist, Marx's famous saying that the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point, however, is to change it. This is, you know, Peterson, somewhat ironically, since he's not a fan of Marx, has kind of the same idea. He's not mainly interested in just understanding why things happened the way they did in the past. I mean, that is a part of his work. He does <clears throat> want to just understand things. But there's this other side where he's interested in changing things in the present. So he does this kind of emergent interpretation rather than a purely situational or historical interpretation. So anyway, this is one example of why I think it's important to keep Peckham's distinction between situational and emergent interpretation in mind. When you hear someone interpreting a text, a work of art, a piece of music, something like that, ask yourself, are they trying to uncover the factors that cause that text or artwork to be generated? Or are they using the text or artwork to illustrate some novel ideology in the interpreter's own situation? Ah, okay, well, this concludes at long last my mini-series on the limits of pluralism debate. No one in the debate really agreed with anyone else in a major way. <clears throat> Wayne Booth and M.H. Abrams agreed on a few points. Uh, Peckham and Abrams agreed on a few minor points as well. But no one really changed their mind. Uh, but did we learn anything? Well, pluralism seems to have won out, but how much 
pluralism. Abrams and Peckham are proponents of what we've just been calling situational interpretation. So Abrams and Peckham are kind of on the side of situational interpretation. And it would seem that there are limits to pluralism in this case when you're talking about situational interpretation. So our interpretation of a text in this case is limited by our understanding of the situation which generated that text. Our knowledge of, a, of the situation in which the text was created puts a limit on our interpretation. J. Hillis Miller, the disciple of Derrida, the deconstructionist, J. Hillis Miller was a strong proponent of emergent interpretation, and this seems to impose few, if any, limits. What limits are there on emergent interpretation? Um, Peckham accepted, basically, <clears throat> Peckham accepted emergent interpretation as, you know, just part of the normal course of things, part of normal human behavior. Um, Abram seemed bothered by it, at least in a scholarly context. Uh, James Kincaid for, Kincaid, for his part, seemed to be more weakly or equivocally in support of emergent interpretation. Uh, you might recall that he said that texts are often incoherent, so the reader has to do a lot of perceptual work to try to make sense of them, and uh, he seemed to think, um, or maybe it was implied, that appealing to history does not help much. Certainly he did not really appeal, um, appeal to history in discussing the texts that he discussed. Uh, and then Wayne Booth. Wayne Booth suggested ethical limits on interpretation. And interestingly, uh, J. Hillis Miller, in his later work, suggests that emergent interpretation is guided by ethical considerations as well. So I think everyone, everyone that we've talked about in this limits of pluralism debate, accepts some kind of limits on pluralism in literary interpretation. It's just that the limits are maybe different depending on whether you're practicing situational interpretation or whether you're practicing emergent interpretation. Okay, well, that and that finally is what I have for you today. So that's all. Um, as always, thank you for listening.